Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, Victor's co-host and the author of The Watergate Girl, as well as being an MSNBC legal analyst. I'm also the person who wears hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is pretty obvious. It is in support of Ukraine in the unjust war that uh, Russia has started with it. And as the champion of democracy, not just for Ukraine, but as the um, country that is standing between Russia and the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. So I'm supporting Ukraine. Regular listeners and viewers of this podcast will know how much we try to raise awareness about the state of cable news in this country. We've had on anchors, journalists, and analysts who you watch regularly on MSNBC, CNN, and even Fox News. But rarely do we have someone who has seen the inside view of all three networks. That makes our guest today someone who can provide insight into the differences between the networks, how we can reform cable news, and what the future of journalism and cable news might be. I think it's going to be a really enlightening episode. Essie Cup is our guest today, and she is a fascinating person who is currently with CNN. She has been a lifetime conservative Republican. Um, she has, before being at CNN, she was with MSNBC. Before that, she was with Fox News. She also has written her entire time since she got out of college many, many newspapers and other uh, magazines, and she brings a lot to bear on our discussion about what the world is today, what cable news is, what the issues of the day are, and we are really looking forward to hearing from her about the Republican Party and how Trump has changed it. So thank you, Essie, for being here today with us. Uh, The pleasure and honor are mine. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So um, let's begin with um, an interesting fact about you. So while you were at Cornell for undergrad, you were actually an art history major. I'm wondering how you got from that to journalism. Um, Many college students, including me, are interested in hearing more about that. And I guess so is Jill's husband, because he was a philosophy undergrad, but ended up owning an Asian antiques and primitive art gallery. So maybe talk a little bit more about that and then how you got to journalism from there. Well, it's odd that you don't see the straight line from art history <laughs> political, you know, columnist. Uh, but no, listen, I got to college like many college kids. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I had always loved art and I knew I wanted a career that involved a lot of writing because uh, I liked writing and that came very naturally to me. And so I started with art, but I also um, interned at the college newspaper freshman year. And that's where I fell in love. And that's where I decided I would get my education. And so I spent the next three years, uh, because I graduated early, three years, all of my college at the Cornell Daily Sun, where I was um, first a writer and then ended up being an editor. And art history was great. um, You know, I I still love art, but uh, the writing and the, the college newspaper was where I got my real you know, quote unquote degree. And that's where I decided what I wanted to do. So I'm wondering, do you think majors actually matter? I know I talk a lot to my peers and they always fret about which major they want to choose. Do you think majors matter more than experience or does experience matter more than your major? 
I'm sure it depends on what you're doing, right? Like, I don't think you can be an architect, um, you know, just by like venturing out into the world and becoming an architect. <laughs> I think you do need that training, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think if you go to a really good, in my case, a good liberal arts school, because I, you know, I wasn't going into engineering, um, then listen, you learn to write, you learn to, to, to read critically. These are all really important things for whatever you're, you're going to do. I don't think in my case, my major was important, but I, I spent most of my scholarship at Cornell, my scholarly time, um, writing papers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all my exams were papers. So 20 page papers was a norm was, was normal for me. And then I went to grad school and that was all papers and writing. And so that certainly helped in my future career. If I had had to start writing as, um, someone out of college with, with very little experience writing, obviously that wouldn't have worked out well, but you know, I think it probably depends on what you want to do. Yeah, for sure. And what was your first job out of college and how did that lead to what came next? So I don't know if I was lucky or unlucky, but I, like I said, left college a year early and that was lucky because when I left in 2000, I could still get a job in the dot-com world. And so I got a, an awesome job at a place called drinks.com where I was an editor writing about bars and cocktails and <laughs> restaurants. And it was great as a 21 year old. But within four months, it folded because the dot-com bubble burst. And so the next few months, I freelanced writing everywhere. I mean, literally anywhere that would have me. You know, I wrote for the bond buyer, some financial um, newspaper that um, I'm sure I was unqualified for. I wrote for travel books. I wrote anywhere I could. And I wrote PR copy because I just wanted to write. And jobs, like I said, were tough to come by right then. Uh, and then eventually, like a year later, I got a job at the New York Times. And I was there for eight years and sort of um, carved out not only a journalism career, but a political career while I was there. So it sounds like a pretty direct line from what you did in college, now that we're hearing about the newspaper and your love of writing. And you did get published in a lot of publications. I mean, almost every major publication that you could possibly have written for, you were published in. What were some of the biggest issues that you were writing about then? Yeah, well, I mean, to to your earlier point, I was voracious. I wanted to be published and I wanted to be published anywhere. And it's tough to get published when you don't have clips or your only clips are from your college newspaper and you're competing against kids who interned at, you know, New York Magazine over the summer and they have clips. It was tough. So I was very persistent and I was mostly writing about politics, but also the intersection of media and politics and culture and politics. And so I was reaching out because I was starting from a center right place. I was reaching out to places like human events and town hall, right leaning publications, but eventually, you know, the New York daily news and, um, Washington post, New York times, um, you know, eventually when you get enough, I guess, credibility as a writer, uh, you know, some more doors open and I was relentless. I wanted to open every single door 
that would have me. So, I mean, I wrote sports. I wrote for Sports Illustrated and Maxim and NASCAR. And if a door was open, I wanted to, to, to walk into it and write. So I explored a lot while, while I was kind of coming up. At what, did you have a specific assignment at these newspapers? I mean, what was your role specifically? No, I'm mostly freelanced. I started getting jobs. I got a regular column at Town Hall. I had a regular spot in Politico kind of early. And then Sports Illustrated gave me an assignment. I was meant to go into sort of quirky sports uh, venues and cover them. So I covered like bull bull riding and um, fencing. Wow. And really fun. I mean, fun stuff. I thought that was really super fun. Um, that was an assignment. Uh, I, I eventually got my, my regular column at the New York Daily News writing on politics. I got that like 10 years ago, and I luckily still have it. It's such a, a gift. I'm really proud of that, um, that weekly column, which is now nationally syndicated. Um, but I fought hard to get that column. I had to prove myself a lot to my editor, who's still my editor today, that I could do this week after week, that I could make deadlines that I could churn out, you know, copy that wasn't just derivative or that my range was wide enough that I could cover whatever was going on. Um, and that I wasn't a novelty as a young woman conservative Mm -hmm. in Manhattan, that that wasn't just a one trick pony, you know? So I had to prove that over some time before I finally got that regular space. So you, and I'm, I'm still, I'm still lucky to have it. Sounds like you were an early gig worker uh, in the days when people really weren't doing that so much. And um, then you also ventured into television. Um, You were at NSNBC, my very favorite channel, of course, as co-host of The Cycle. Uh, So what was it like going from writing to actually being on air? Well... Yeah. And this was not a move I made. Um, I wrote the first book I wrote, our publisher, Simon & Schuster, booked us on shows to promote Mm -hmm. it. And I think my first was Morning Joe um, on MSNBC. And after doing a few of those, you know, networks kind of just called to say, can you come back? Can you do this? And I was happy to have that platform to promote my writing. Mm -hmm. And so I just said, yes, I said yes to everyone. And because I wasn't signed, I could go on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, whoever would have me. And so I did. I went everywhere. Uh, I did The View. I did Bill Maher. You know, I did Al Jazeera. I mean, I could take down the list of um, odds and ends I did. And eventually, I don't know, I cobbled together like a little brand um, of sorts, this suite of jobs from writing to TV. And I got some radio jobs as well. And I mean, eventually the broadcast part, which pays better than the print part, let me tell you, um, you know, just kind of became the full-time gig. And I've always said yes to TV and broadcast as long as I could continue the writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means writing for television. I write my own scripts and I've, you know, on all the shows I've had, I've always written for myself and I continued you know, my, my, my print writing as well. So as long as I could do all that, I was really open to it. And, you know, here we are many years later, I think I've been at CNN nine or 10 years now. It's wild. This was not the, this was not the path I charted the writing part. Yes. But this, you know, the TV, I never really saw. So you have an interesting perspective because you've been, uh, 
regularly on CNN, of course, but you were on MSNBC and you were on Fox. And I want to sort of, let's go back to the Fox time. Um, You were on a show, a nightly news show, Red Eye with uh, Greg Gutfeld. And what was it like working with Greg back then? And watching him on Fox News now um, with Janine Piero and others, it's, it makes me wonder what it was like. So talk about that, please. Jill, Jill it makes me wonder, <laughs> um, believe me. <laughs> Listen, that was... In many ways, Fox is very different from how it was then. In some, it's the same. Listen, when I was there, there we, you know, they were doing birtherism. That was there. Mm, yeah. uh, I didn't engage in any of that and disavowed all of that. Um, but there was the populist, nationalist mm-hmm. undercurrent was there. It, it's exploded now, and it's almost the main course. That's all. That's all you can get there for the most part. Um, but that was just a strain then. And so a uh, late night show like Red Eye was a comedy show. And we, yes, we talked about, you know, political correctness and uh, we talked about politics, but it was fun and light. And it was on at 3 a.m. I mean, uh, nobody took us very seriously and, and I had a blast doing it. Um, and then I would go on Hannity and Combs before Alan died. I went on Hannity. I, you know, went on Fox and Friends. I did almost all the shows uh, because I was a conservative pundit coming up. And so, you know, that's where you went. And I'll tell you, it felt good to be surrounded by people who agreed with you for the most part and told you no matter what you said, oh, that's so true, Essie. But it felt, it was so much better for me to go somewhere else where I didn't have those crutches, where I really had to sharpen my Mm -hmm. arguments and learn how to talk to liberals and independents and progressives and even conservatives who disagreed with me. Uh, That was a much more formative and helpful experience than it would have been if I had stayed working for Fox. It's interesting because I remember the era when Democrats and Republicans spoke to each other civilly and had debates about policy implications of agreed upon facts. And now, of course, I watch, you know, Fox occasionally, not all that often, but I do try to be informed. And I see a total disinformation campaign. I don't even see an absence of facts. I see lies. And I'm wondering if there is any way to bring us back to a time when facts mattered, whether will lawsuits like Dominion and Smartmatix, which could bankrupt Fox, would would those make a difference? Is there some way to get facts to matter again and to have people debating issues, not facts? I mean, this is my biggest lament. And, I, you know, I talk about this all the time because I think it is one of the, the top issues we are confronting as a civilized society. Um, And we're seeing a breakdown of our society because of lies and disinformation. And the first thing I'll say is we have to want to reject that. And I'm, 
I think there are plenty of news consumers, quote unquote, news consumers who want the affirmations, who want their grievances affirmed, their conspiracy theories affirmed, uh, their hatred of the other party affirmed. They want people to talk more about who their enemies are than they do their friends and allies or, or come, come to some kind of agreement. And let me just be clear, like, I'll talk to people at Fox. They think we're crazy. They think I'm crazy and CNN's lost their minds. It's not, I mean, I feel like it's, you know, a binary choice, but it, it isn't to them. I mean, they really do see things differently. And that's hard to cut through when you can't agree that like basic facts, um, good stewards of information and journalism are, are, are acting and, that's just not the case. So you can't force that on news consumers who don't want it. You know, you can't force C-SPAN on them. Um, so they have to first and foremost want that. And listen, I don't have Hannity's ratings. I don't, you know, for a reason. I don't have Tucker's ratings for a reason. Because that's what I try to do in my work as a journalist is find solution yeah. points, talk to people who disagree, but we can come to some kind of starting point, um, that is rejected on cable news. But let me give you the good news. The good news is if you go and look at any number one, number two, you know, top rated cable news star, Tucker, Sean, whomever, and it's the same at CNN or MSNBC, go to their top people. It's not a huge majority of the country that's tuning in. It's like 2% of the country is tuning in to the cable news primetime eight or nine o'clock show. Most people are tuning out. Most people are watching other stuff. They're watching new, you know, other news, local news. They're watching sports. They're watching Netflix. They're watching, um, you know, network sitcoms. So take solace in the fact that these guys are winning the ratings wars because it's a very small group of people that they, they are competing and so we can win those hearts and minds. I don't think cable news is the right vehicle to do it. So what is the right vehicle? Because I don't take solace in knowing that people are uninformed or ill-informed. Yeah. And I look at what's happening in Russia where all sources of what I would call fact are being labeled fake news and being deprived uh, to the people of Russia. So they don't know that their country has attacked an independent country. Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot, you know, we can do about the Russia propaganda over there. Certainly dealing with social media, um, you know, is a, is a step. But listen, uh, that's a real tough uh no, but I, what I'm saying is it's the same but, here. People who get into a silo yeah. of Fox information and people who get into uh, of what is actual fact uh, based on, you know, I yeah. see what happened on January 6th. I believe my own eyes and I believe what I'm hearing. So <laughs> right. um, that it's, it's sort of a more general question. Yes, Russia may be a harder um, thing to deal with, but even in America, we're having a problem with facts. I think to a certain extent, some of those folks, to my earlier point, you're not going to reach. They don't want yeah. to be reached. 
all your attempts at telling them this is wrong, this is not true, are going to bury them in deeper um, and make them feel like they're being, you know, victimized. Uh, just psychologically, we know that's sort of what happens with um, when you're dealing with cults. And actually, I'm I'm wearing oh, a shirt. Don't be cult- I love it. Don't be culty. Um, because I think if we look more at a lot of these folks as if they're part of a cult, that really, I think, is more yeah. instructive. Now, I'm not saying everyone who watches right. Fox News is, but I think to a certain extent, you're not going to reach yeah. those people. But I think my prescription for the rest is we need to give more money, resources, and attention to local news. We are so obsessed with cable news and what's happening nationally in Washington. We're not looking what's happening in our own backyard. And we don't know what's happening in our own backyard because we don't have a thriving local news infrastructure. Newspapers are shuttering. Small town TV stations are being swallowed up by these conglomerates and then like told what to say. Um, if you don't pay attention to what's happening on your sanitation board and your yes. school board, you're really missing what's 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 most going to affect your life. It's not what's happening in Washington, D.C. It's what's happening in your own town. And the people holding your local representatives accountable are local news journalists. And let's not forget, local news can become national news very quickly. Just look at Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know, which was covered by the Miami Herald and turned into a national, in fact, international story. Um, The Boston, you know, priest scandal spotlight, Um, you know, Jerry Sandusky, the Penn State story was covered by a local newspaper and blown wide open. All these stories matter to everyone, but they start with local news. And so I think if we pour more attention into local news, local news will pay out in dividends in terms of reorienting what our focus is and what our priorities are. And it's not following some doomsday cult off into the hinterlands led by, you know, an aggrieved former president. That's not it. I so agree with you on the local news point. And, you know, just as a student, I'm wondering what, like what we can do in the classrooms. I know Illinois was a state that passed an information literacy class or a news literacy class for all students to take. I'm wondering if you think that might be beneficial for young people as they come up and they consume news. If they, I think you, you think that there should be more of these type of like news literacy, civic literacy, civic, um, uh, I guess, classes. Yeah, I don't know. In Illinois, was that in college yeah. or what? I think it's actually high school. Or was it middle school? Still? Yeah. High school? Because yeah. I think college is yeah. too late. Yeah. I think high school mm-hmm. might even be too late. I think mm-hmm. you have to start in middle school when, yeah. you know, you have your first current events class or your first sort of, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, that's when I had mine. I had, you know, in sixth grade, my first world events class yeah. and we yeah. read newspapers. And I think that's when you have to start engaging people and 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 teaching kids about disinformation mm-hmm. and propaganda and how to critically, not just read, but critically find news and not news that just 
confirms your biases. Right, right. Not so sure if my generation knows what newspapers <laughs> anymore, but hopefully we can bring that term back <laughs> to the forefront. Um, so I, I want to move into uh, your time at CNN. So you actually joined CNN um, on a new version of Crossfire, which is a show that no longer exists, but was a very interesting concept. Can you explain that program for our audience? Well, so mine was a reboot, and I had grown up watching the original Crossfire. Yeah. Jill, I'm sure you remember with, you know, just the best of the best journalists and mm-hmm. Washington politicos, and they got heated. I mean, you know, they could they could yell at each other. But it, at the end of the day, this is how I've always described how a panel show, right, with regular guests should go, because I've had several of these now. I've said... The audience should know mom and dad are fighting, but they're not getting divorced. And you can fight, have fights. But if the audience thinks when the cameras go off, you guys storm off into your separate rooms and you hate each other, you don't, you don't talk anymore. That's uncomfortable. That's unsustainable. Um, they want to know that when the cameras are off, you guys can still go out and have a meal or go back to work the next day and have normal conversations. And so that's what we tried to do at Crossfire. And I was close with all my colleagues at Crossfire as I was with my colleagues on MSNBC at The Cycle, where I was the lone conservative. And then there were three, um, you know, left of center guests. So I, I firmly believe in that format. I love a debate show when it starts with mom and dad aren't getting divorced. And the point is to make a television, but also to find some agreement points, to solve some problems. If you're just highlighting how broken everything is, I'm not sure what service that that provides to anyone. So if you're doing those things, I really believe in that. And I, I am shocked that there are no debate shows on cable news and primetime at all right now, because that's all there was back in the day. And I think we should return to that I think people want to see these arguments debated civilly and, you know, um, with nuance and to find some solution points. Do you think that's possible now? Well, the, you know, cable news executives have to want to take that risk. Um, you know, if, if you're just looking at the ratings, like I've said, it's Tucker, it's Sean, it's, it's Rachel, it's, it's, um, you know, personalities who are just telling you, here are my thoughts and my thoughts alone. And I really hope you agree with them. And they do. Audiences do. That's why they're there. Oh, and I'm not excluding CNN. Don Lemon, you know, is um, also an opinion host. And, you know, it, it feels like the network executives are all in on that. But I really think there's room to have a, a panel show where you represent a number of different ideas nuanced ideas, because even if I just tell you today that I'm a, a conservative, well, you don't know what that means anymore because you wouldn't know that I'm an anti-Trump conservative and I've completely rejected where this Republican party has gone and is going. And, you know, I've got more fans on the left than I do on the right now. So even that doesn't give you the full picture. You really need a couple perspectives, more than a couple perspectives represented. So I think if there were someone willing to take a risk and try that out, I, I agree with you. I remember yeah. back so to maybe, the days of yeah. Gore Vidal and Buckley. 
And it was a full conversation, very yeah. educational, because you got to hear a reasonable presentation of facts and information and why someone chose a policy on the conservative side or the liberal side. Uh, so I'm, I'm all with you on that. Sorry right. to interrupt, Victor. No, you're all good. I, I think this is the perfect segue to your current show on CNN. You explore the intersection of politics and media with newsmakers, politicians, and journalists. I, I'm, you describe, you try to have a wide range of perspectives. I'm wondering then, do you have a line in terms of who you're going to have on? And if so, how do you draw that line on your show? Yeah. So, the, I mean, just as a point of fact, the um, the current show is not on the air right now. Um, you know, COVID kind of came along and we had regular news briefings during my hour, which bumped us. And then uh, there's just a lot of kind of moving parts right now at the network. So my show's not on anymore, uh, but I do an online version uh, for CNN.com, uh, it, which doesn't have any guests. But what the show efforted to do was only invite people on that I respected. I didn't have to agree with your opinion to respect it. And I didn't like having people on just to embarrass them or just to gotcha them or to point and laugh and say, see, look how stupid this side of an argument is. I never wanted to do that. So if I had someone on, whether it was someone on the far right I disagreed with or the far left I disagreed with, I still wanted you to hear their opinion and hear us kind of talk it through. And I was real careful with that. But I was lucky. I had that liberty. By the time I had my own show... I could say, I don't want this guest on, or I want this guest on. Sometimes, you know, when you're given a show and other people are involved, the bookings happen and you don't always get to say, this isn't the right person for this show, or, you know, this person's going to make it a mess. So I got really lucky when I finally had, you know, some control over the way my show ran. Uh, that's just not the case for all the shows. It's definitely all the case for people in prime time. They can all, they can all decide who gets booked and who doesn't. But sometimes you just don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. So, in the current edition of um, the, I guess, online version, what topics are you covering now? Um, and I'm assuming Ukraine's one of them. But how do you kind of come to the topics you decide to cover now? Well, I want to cover what's most important in the news cycle, but I don't want to regurgitate the stuff you've been hearing all day on CNN or somewhere else. So. I am paid to give my opinion. It's a very narrow focus. It's my opinion. And I do that from a very informed place. I, you know, I source my stories. I use journalism to do it. But I try to find something within the major news of that day about which I have a very strong opinion. And that I see some injustice or hypocrisy or inconsistency or something that's not being highlighted that I think is really great. Uh, that's kind of kind of where I live, and so that could be Ukraine. I've talked about Ukraine, of course. Um, I'm talking a lot about Syria now because I covered Syria for now 11 years, and obviously we're seeing some uh, echoes. Uh, that's politics. I covered the State of the Union, of course. Uh, you know uh, the day to day day to day of politics and policy, but it's also culture and. Um, I do a lot. I cover a lot of where Trump is taking the Republican Party because uh, I think that's a really scary, 
scary and dangerous place. Yeah. Let's talk about the Republican Party. I've read that you uh, consider yourself to be a log cabin Republican. That's a term that I had never heard of. So I researched a little bit about that. And um, it's a really interesting term. I'm wondering if you can explain that term for our audience and um, why specifically the fight for LGBT equality. Yeah. So log cabin Republican really defines someone who um, supports gay rights and gay marriage. And it's an old term. I think it came about in Reagan's time. But um, I have always been a gay rights proponent because uh, I I basically grew up in a gay community. I danced uh, professionally with Boston Ballet. All my male friends were gay. Um, it was a very... Um, it was... I didn't know any different. So when I learned that people didn't like my friends or didn't think my friends should have the same kind of rights that I did, I was shocked. Um, and so, I mean, it never, that, it never made sense to me only because I was exposed to it very young and didn't know any better. And then as I grew into my conservative politics, it was only reaffirmed. I think conservatism and wanting the government out of your private life really goes hand in hand with supporting gay rights. And then as a conservative, if you think marriage is a great institution, and I do, why wouldn't you want any two people to enter into it and want the economic stability of marriage and family and all the great things that come with it? So it never um, felt disconnected from my conservatism, even as, you know, Republican Party and conservatives disagreed with me. I will say, you know, Democrats did too about 20 years ago. So it was yeah. not just that the right hadn't gotten there yet. A lot of people hadn't gotten there yet. And so for me, um, that's always felt natural. And any policy arguments I could make around civil unions versus marriage were, <clears throat> excuse me, very specific to, 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 to policy. Uh, but it just never felt inconsistent with my politics to me. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen Republicans come out against this very idea, at least now. Um, I'm wondering what it makes you feel to see Republicans like Ron DeSantis, I guess, pass bills like the Don't Say Gay bill um, down in Florida. It just feels so punitive. It feels so mean. And I feel the same way about um, anti-abortion bills because I, I'm pro-life, but I still, I still believe that we should fight for the health of mothers. We shouldn't punish them when they're raped. We shouldn't, um, we shouldn't punish them, period. And all of these far-right Republican Party culture war bills to me right now seem punitive. They're not backed in any kind of conservative underpinning philosophies. They're just to punish. And I, that's just, that's disgusting. No, I mean, you can address all the reasons why the bills are bad, forcing people back into the closet. I, I know what happens when that happens, tragically. Um, and, you know, all the, the, I think, bad stuff that's going to come out of Texas laws where you have citizens arresting other people for getting abortions. I mean, you can talk about practically the damage those bills will do, but just on a higher level. All these people want to do is punish and it's, it's mean 
And to me, it does not feel conservative. It definitely doesn't feel Christian. Um, so you mentioned it something it that feel I, I didn't want to interrupt while, Victor, and you were talking. But um, first of all, in all our research, we didn't find out that you danced professionally with the ballet. And so I, I definitely have to ask about that. But I also want to make the point that people Very now nice. know gay people. And that's what's changed the attitude about LGBTQ, about right. same-sex marriage, is we know people and we say, well, yes, they're nice people. So as you said, they didn't like my friends. That made a difference. But t- talk about your dancing. How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, the short story is, it's first grade and all my friends have after school activities. And so I have no one to play with. And so my mom said, what do you want to do? I said, I have no idea. She said, well, there's a ballet school in town. So she signed me up and little did we know that it was this Russian Vaganova, like the, the most intense kind of ballet you wow. can do. I'm on point shoes at seven, like yeah. super intense, no talking, all instruction in Russian and French. And so I, you, you'd think that would turn me off. No, 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 no. I got real sucked in to the competitiveness of it, the discipline. And I just always wanted to get better. Mm. And so from six or seven on, it, it was my, it was my life. Mm-hmm. I, you know, eventually it was six days a week all year. We did it summers. I did, you know, I went to special classes. I had to leave school early for rehearsals, for performances. It was it was, it was my life and quitting when I did like literally right before college was one of the hardest decisions I I'd had, had to make. And it was absolutely the right one. Absolutely the right one. And I, you know, Uh, my favorite (laughs) uh, cultural event is ballet. And I was only, I only took (laughs) till I was in, I think I stopped at the end of grade school. Uh, because I knew I would never be good enough to to do. But I I was taking classes four days a week, and then the fifth day was piano lessons so that I would be more musical, and the sixth day was Girl Scouts. Um, So anyway, um, back to, yeah, yeah. And and I I will also say, for my 40th (laughs) birthday, I went back on point. I went back to take ballet lessons uh, from the Hubbard Street Dance Company and went back on point. So let me tell you, it's a lot easier when you're in oh sixth God. and seventh grade than it is when you're 40 years old. But anyhow, um, <laughs> let's talk, go back to the Republican Party and their increasing <laughs> efforts to ban discussion about sexual identity, uh, which is part of, I think, what you're saying about how mean they are. And, but they're also banning books and running again on critical race theory that doesn't exist in grade schools. It's a legal doctrine. It's taught in law school. Um, so it's dividing us on cultural issues. And what's your take on this and what can we do about banning books? I mean, to me, banning books is the worst. And using critical race theory as a talking point is yeah. hideous. Um, so I don't know where it began, how we end it. You know, why did Trump pick this up? Why did the Republican Party take it on? What can you tell us? How can you inform us on this? Well, the point is always 
division. Uh, the point is to divide us. And that is not just a feature of cults. It's a feature of autocracies. Uh, you know, that's, that's what strong men do. Because when you can consolidate power and have yourself as the only trusted source of information, then you can very easily control people and tell them, don't believe your lying eyes about anything you see except what comes out of my, my mouth. Uh, so it's very scary. But the point is the division. Uh, so pick your issue, whether it's mm -hmm. these idiotic yeah. book bans, which I can't, I can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth right now in 2022, book bans, yeah. um, or Confederate statues, whatever, pick your thing that Republicans have glommed very unseriously onto. Uh, you know, the point is the division. The point is the cruelty. The point is to get people mad at each other. And a leader would have said, this is terrible. No, 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 no. Let's not do this. But Trump wasn't a leader. Trump preyed on this, stoked it, fomented it, told people, your neighbor is the enemy. Your neighbor is why you don't have a job. Your neighbor is why, you know, your, um, your schools are bad or whatever it is. He's responsible. Go get him. And sometimes that meant the neighbor was someone who didn't look like you. Sometimes it meant the neighbor was a, an illegal immigrant. Sometimes it meant the neighbor was a woman. Whoever it was, they're responsible. Go be mad at that. That's not what leaders do. Uh, but that was the Trump doctrine more than anything else. That was the Trump doctrine. And so it's been very disorienting for Republican Republicans and conservatives like me who grew up with policy, you know, around policy issues like limited government, lowering the debt and deficit, lowering taxes, a strong national defense. These are the things that animated me. Um, mm -hmm. Those issues are, are done. Literally at the last CPAC, the words debt and deficit did not appear on a single panel. Not, not, not a single panel. Like I went to several CPACs. I grew up going to CPACs. And you could find a hundred panels on the debt and deficit. And, you know, I mean, that was kind of the, the bread and butter. And that's all been jettisoned because Trump doesn't care about the policy. So interesting. He just cares and about it seems division. very true to me that it is division that is driving people. It also, I remember when Republicans were for personal responsibility, blaming someone else. And boy. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> I guess we all get it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you've made clear why you are not a Trump supporter and why you are an anti-Trump Republican. Um, what's your message to fellow Republicans and yeah. how can we communicate in a way that will show what I consider to be an existential threat to democracy and freedom as we both as me as a liberal, you as a conservative, would agree upon. I mean, there are many points where we do come together and those are eviscerated. So what's what's the yes. next step? Well, first of all, I long <laughs> stopped giving advice to Republicans, you know, giving a message yeah. like, yeah. I mean, that's deaf ears. And listen, I, you know, as far gone as I think they are, they think I'm just as far gone, like I said. Um, 
But I think what you just said is really important. I think this is an existential crisis. It might not even be existential anymore. It might be a very real crisis Mm -hmm. where democracy itself is on a precipice. And the idea that this experiment might fail, to me, does not seem incomprehensible. I I watched people willingly try to break democracy on January 6th. They weren't there to just, you know, start trouble. They were there to break democracy, overthrow a democratic election. That's basically the whole ballgame, guys. The elections have to be believed. When we vote, we have to believe our vote will count. If that goes away, that's really the whole, that's the whole thing. And so it's no surprise that's what Republicans are trying to do. They're trying to undermine your trust in elections. And so to watch people try to break democracy, break America, I don't know how you watch that and think we're not in real trouble because they're going to try again. And when you don't have two major parties that are strong and at their best, bringing their best ideas to the table and competing in a marketplace of ideas and When you don't have that, when you have this lopsided political system now where we have a strong Democratic Party bringing lots of ideas to the table, many of which I won't agree with, but they're bringing real ideas to the table, and you have a Republican Party that has abandoned not just all of the conservative political principles that used to hold it up, but what it means to be American, what democracy is, all of that is gone uh, you don't have any of the checks and balances that keep a democracy together. Oh, so I think, is a very I think that time. summarizes. No, it, it's it's a little downbeat, but Sorry. it is encouraging <laughs> that you as a conservative Republican are willing to admit that and to think about how do we address it. And that's what uh, we try to do on this show is to bring ideas to the fore and to have a discussion with people people that have different perspectives. And that's how things, I still believe in bipartisanship. I even compromise. I don't think that having it all your way is the answer. We have to be able to live in a diverse community. And, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, as we're recording this, a war in Ukraine, which is about a independent country being taken over by an autocrat uh, who will kill all of their freedoms. And, um, you know, we're sending our support to them as much as we can and um, hoping for the survival of democracy here as well as in Ukraine. So we thank you for your insights. It was really fascinating. And um, uh, I I'm glad that you're on television, not dancing ballet, because you bring a lot to there. But um, maybe someday go on point together. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay, well, Jill and Victor, thanks so much for having this discussion and for having more of these discussions. I, I still believe in them, and I appreciate you guys asking, Thank asking you. the questions. Thank you so much, Jesse. This has been wonderful. My pleasure. 
thank you so much for listening to this episode of iGEM Politics with SE Cup. It was so interesting, and we hope you enjoyed it very much. We'll be back next week with another episode of iGEM Politics. But in the meantime, you can review us on Apple Podcasts and rate us there. Also, be sure to follow us wherever you follow your podcasts. And also, we are on YouTube. So if you're on YouTube watching this, you can like us and press the subscribe button and get the notifications every week because we're here every Wednesday. So be sure to subscribe, follow, and like, and we'll see you next week for another great episode of iGen Politics.